It is such a, such a joy to be back here again because I've preached here a couple of times, but not in this beautiful new worship center. This is an amazing place. And you know, I, I have known your pastor for a number of years, and I believe that Dwayne and Pam are just two of the, the absolute most real deal disciples that I know. Uh, they are faithful to the Word of God. He has uh, loved you and stuck with you and been faithful to preach Christ. And we praise God for His ministry. And I'm grateful for His friendship. He's considered one of the, one of the finest pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I hope that you realize how blessed you are to have him. I'm grateful to have my wife here, uh, Janet, and then my daughters, Kristen and Allison, Allison's husband, Scott, and our friend, Danae, and my beautiful granddaughter, Mary Grace. And uh, we're, we're, some of us, Mary Grace and Janet and I are going to South Africa this coming uh, Saturday and have a mission trip with 20 of our folks from First Baptist Naples. Well, would you take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. When we sing, God bless America, and you've heard that song. I remember particularly after 9-11 that all over America, people were singing, God bless America. God wants to bless America. And the greatest need is not to make America great again, but blessed again. And one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible is right here in Psalm 33. And as we take this word, I want you to realize that God wants to bless you. I came to the Lord as a teenager at a New Year's Eve party when a man looked at me who worked with students and he said, God bless you, Hayes. And that's all he said, God bless you. And the Lord came into my life. I received him. I, I didn't realize before that time that he loved me and that Jesus had died for me. And when I said, Lord, I give my life to you. Forgive me for my sins. It was in that two-sentence prayer that I got the blessing of my life. And the Lord wants to bless you today as well. But would you stand as we read the Word of God together? The Bible says we're to give attendance to the reading of Scripture. And so I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and you read from your copy of God's Word or just listen. Psalm 33, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre, make melody to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. 
The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Would you be seated, please? When my son Evan was about seven years old, we were at a church where I was speaking, and the pastor gave him some stones from the Berlin Wall. Now, some of you are not old enough to remember how significant that was, but after World War II, Germany was divided between East and West, and the communists put in the Berlin Wall to keep those in East Germany from going into freedom in the West Side. But when God moved mightily and the evil empire began to crumble, they took down piece by piece the Berlin Wall so that both sides of Germany could be reunited. And so my pastor friend gave some stones of the, of the broken down Berlin Wall and explained to my son Evan that these were pictures of how uh, God had answered prayer and how liberty had come to those in Germany. It was a wonderful symbol of the fall of the Soviet Union. And some of you remember that. But a few months later, I asked Evan, I said, Evan, uh, where are those gray stones that Pastor Dan gave you from the Berlin Wall? And he said, uh, well, uh, Dad, I shot them in my slingshot in the woods. I said, you did what? You shot the Berlin Wall into the woods? And, and, and in great frustration, I'm thinking, I cannot believe he had such little appreciation for something that's significant. But you know, there is a sense where many of us no longer consider our freedoms to be that precious, and a sense in which we sling away the wonderful stones. And the Bible says that the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And so when we come to a time like this and a service like this, we have the wonderful privilege not only of singing praise to the Lord and speaking His Word, but exercising our freedom of speech and religion, which we must never, ever throw away. When God blesses a nation, the word bless means not only to kneel as we bless the Lord in worship, but it is the idea that God says or does something that brings glory to His name or edifies His people. 
God blessed Israel in a mighty way, and God has truly blessed America. But just as with Israel, who was to be a shining light to the nations, God wants us to recommit to taking in our freedom the gospel around the world. And therefore, all the earth will fear the Lord. When you see that, when we read that a moment ago, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him in verse 8. Awe and inspiring come together when the gospel is heard, when missions goes forth to all the nations, when we share the gospel with people right here in our area. Now, I pledge allegiance not only to the flag and to the republic for which it stands, but as a believer today, I want you to join me in pledging allegiance to the Lord. And first of all, you have your notes, your sermon listening notes. I pledge allegiance to the Lord with gladness of worship. Notice verses 1 through 3. Now, all worship must be with joyful gladness. I appreciate the, uh, the wonderful spirit of worship that we have here today and gladness in the Lord. Don't ever forget that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, all worship is with joyful freedom. When our signers and founders began this nation, they not only signed uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Liberty Bell rang in Philadelphia, and Janet and I had an opportunity to see it. And the story goes that they rang it so hard so long that it, there was a crack in it. But did you know that inscribed in the Liberty Bell is a passage from Leviticus, proclaim liberty throughout all the land. And that passage in Leviticus was then used as Jesus' sermon text in his inaugural sermon, Luke 4, when he said that he came and under the anointing of the Spirit of God to preach good news, liberty to all who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He was speaking about the year of Jubilee. When every 50 years in Israel, God had determined that if someone had been sold into debtor's prison, they would be set free and the land would return to the rightful owner. And when Jesus preached that sermon, not only fulfilling the first half of uh, Isaiah 61, but at the same time he was saying, now and forever is the year of Jubilee. Sound the trumpet, ring the bell, proclaim liberty throughout the land. You are set free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God has given us that joy, that freedom, and that freedom of worship, uh, according to the psalmist, could be expressed in song and with instruments. The lyre, the ten-string harp. I think of a really cool guitar, don't you? Can't you just see David strumming the guitar like, like Ryan and, and singing a joyful song to the Lord? One generation shall praise his works to another. And I'm afraid that sometimes in our churches, we have one group that says we're holier than thou and another group that says we're cooler than thou. Neither is godly. But all together, one generation and this generation and the next generation, 
praising the Lord together in joy. But also, only worship begins with a new song. We can't do it unless our hearts have been changed. Nine times in the Bible, it speaks about a new song that we sing. That could be new in time or new in kind. And in this instance, it's new in kind, out of a new life, a new heart, born again through Jesus Christ. No wonder you can sing and praise the Lord. Because you have that freedom in Christ. You've heard the, the trumpet would, that would sound for the year of Jubilee. And therefore, the word proclaim in the New Testament, as we proclaim good news, is the word for sounding a trumpet and heralding the news of the king. I'm always amazed at what some churches do. There is a church in North Weymouth, Massachusetts, and uh, a few years ago, they began what they call a woof and worship service for dogs and their masters. You could say the church is going to the dogs, I guess. They, they literally bring their dogs. Uh, these are not service animals. These are pets. And they call it woof and worship. And I suppose cats are too backslidden to be invited to church. The Bible says, though, that all who know the Lord, those who praise the Lord out of a heart of gratitude, give thanks to the Lord, can sing the new song. I don't see Rover bowing his head, folding his paws, and say, thank you for my chew toy. No, only the newborn believer can do that. Those of us who are filled with joy in the Lord, oh, you righteous. How are we righteous in Jesus Christ and his righteousness credited to us? Praise befits the upright. Praise looks good on a believer. Do you realize that when we praise the Lord, regardless of our circumstances, we're not only attractive, but it, because it's automatic out of our nature with a new song, it is then authentic to the world. And we're not just saying, well, praise the Lord with some cliche, but with a joyful heart. But here's the second big idea. I pledge allegiance to the Lord because not only uh, with the gladness of worship, but because of the trustworthiness of His Word. And you see how important the Word of God is in this passage, beginning with verse 4 and 5. God's Word establishes the essence of our morality. And yet so many in our culture are uptight about being upright. There is the idea that nobody can truly know what is righteous. God did. God said what is righteous. And what God gave us in His Word and His law 3,000 years ago or so is still as true today. He is still as against idolatry and adultery as He was in Moses' day. I had the privilege for over 20 years of being the pastor of Chuck Colson, of Watergate fame, special counsel to President Nixon, and out of his prison experience, he began Prison Fellowship, the largest ministry of its kind in the world. And as a resident in Naples, I was blessed for Chuck to be a very dear friend. And he recounts one day how he was speaking in a public school up north, 
And they were having all kinds of crime and violence and all kinds of uh, bad behavior in the school. And the principal said to Chuck, you know, we need rules around here, and we ought to put them on the walls. And Chuck said, you had them, and you took them down. The Ten Commandments, hello? God said, this is the essence of morality, His Word revealed it. His Word has told us what is right and upright. But you see, we have a problem today with isms. The old Baptist preacher Vance Havner said, there are a lot of isms that ought to be wasms. Relativism. Those who say there is no such thing as right and wrong, no absolutes. It's like saying, well, I don't believe in the law of gravity. And you can say all day long you don't believe in the law of gravity, but if you jump off a high building, you will believe in the law of gravity. It doesn't change the fact it's true. And those who say there are no absolutes have just made an absolute statement. You see the hypocrisy of that? Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And then Lincoln quoted it in the Gettysburg Address as well. There are certain truths that are self-evident and God-revealed and absolutely true. I saw my first t-ball game some years ago, and uh, this one little guy got up. I don't think he'd ever played any kind of ball before. And he got up and he got with his bat. The ball set up on a tee, you know, if you've never seen one of these. And he hit that ball and took off running. He ran all the way to first base. Then he kept running all the way to right field fence. <laughs> then he ran to center field fence. And he kept running all the way to left field fence to third base and slid home. And all the parents were cheering him, a bunch of postmoderns, just like you. You know, you thought that was so cute. But uh, why touch the bases? Why have standards? There is no such thing. It may be right for you, but it's not right for me. And relativism says some things are right sometimes, but nothing is right all the time. Feeling good and being good are just as important, they say. One size fits all is out of date. And then there's pluralism. All religions are equal in their truth claims. And the sense is all religion is to be banned from the public square and from government, but what happens is the government is not neutral but hostile toward Christianity. It's different from diversity Diversity says there, uh, there is a uh, mulligan stew of our culture, different opinions, different backgrounds, different religions, and we're all free to worship as we choose. But that doesn't mean in that diversity that all are the same in value or are, uh, are right in the eyes of God. We don't need legalism either. We don't need traditionalism, and we cannot be saved by Americanism. As much as we love our freedom and we thank God for America, just because 
I, I say I love America or I'm an American citizen doesn't mean that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God and going to heaven. We have to have a full-on contact with the living God where we bow before him and only when we bow before him can we stand for him. As we come before his holiness, did you realize that uh, Isaiah was the court chaplain? And in 52 years, King Uzziah, the Bible says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But then one day in hubris and pride, he burned incense in the temple that, that was only reserved for the priest. And as a result of that, he was struck with leprosy. He knew better. And finally dying as a leper. No wonder Isaiah in mourning said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he heard the cherubim antiphonally singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In English, we would say good, better, best. We would never say thrice holy, holy, holy. But in Hebrew, they did. Perfection times perfection times perfection is the Lord. The only attribute mentioned three times in a row, holy, and no wonder Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We would say that in America today. With the pornography and the obscenity and uh, the, the road rage and the uncivil talking and all of the coarse jesting and all of the bad humor and all of the cursing, we live in the midst of a cesspool. And we definitely, desperately need forgiveness. And no wonder God cleansed his lips and then said, here, go for me. And the only way that we can come in the fear of the Lord is to come before His holiness. God's Word establishes the essence of our morality, and God's Word is the expression of His creativity. He spoke, He commanded, and all of the universe was created. I go back to my friend Chuck Colson, and uh, one of the first things Chuck told me when we began to discuss theology and the Bible and all of these things, he said, we have to get back to a basic foundational belief in God as creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if we believe that everything just evolved, then man and uh, circumstances and environment has created what is right or what is wrong. All the earth is to praise the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. God breathed and man became a human being. And the Bible says the Scripture is God-breathed. That's the meaning of the word inspired in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. God has spoken to us. And just as the earth is full of His glory and His miracles, God speaks His Word. And we are recreated. You know, the Bible says Jesus was appointed 
in, in, in Luke 2, I believe, for the fall and the rising of many. And that may not have meant anything to you. But you see, whenever someone hears the Word of God and hears about Jesus Christ, they are responsible for what they hear. And yet too many of us uh, become gospel-hardened. We become sermon-proof, conviction-proof. You can never remain the same when you hear the Word of God. You either fall or you rise. You either uh, go further away from Jesus Christ or you draw closer to Him. You cannot remain the same. And when we come to church and the Word of God speaks and creates, God either does something new and fresh in your life or you become more and more hardened. As one preacher said, the hardening of the arteries. We don't see and sense that sense of ought anymore. And so reverence is our response to the excellence of God's attributes and activity. It's called in the Bible the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's not cringing and crawling before Him, but it's clinging to Him, saying, God, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is none that I desire besides you, Lord. I want to please you and you alone. I believe the great loss in our culture and our churches is the fear of the Lord. The Bible says in Malachi 3, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And God recorded what they said and did. We as Christians are so fragmented in our country, and we tend to uh, divide into this party or this denomination or this thing or that thing. We need to speak with one another and praise God together and love Him and speak the Word. But then here is the, my third and final main point. Big idea. I pledge allegiance to the Lord because of the goodness of his ways. And you see that in verses 10 to 22. He is on the throne and on the job. Look with me in this passage again. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. That word was used in Nehemiah when they tried to get Nehemiah to come down from the wall, and they were going to attack the Jews in rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the word says God frustrated their plans. God is on His throne. God is at work. And no matter how they scheme, they cannot checkmate the King of Kings. They cannot outmaneuver God. One of the most incredible examples of this, D-Day, 1944, we were going to invade Fortress Europe, and Hitler was asleep. The German generals did not want to wake him to get his instructions, and they were momentarily paralyzed in their maneuvering and their scheming so that it allowed a window of opportunity for our troops to invade, and as hard as it was... God frustrated their plans. The Lord is on His throne, and He's on the job. John Kennedy, when he was president, made a, a, a change in the Oval Office. He said, no president should ever sit on a couch. He looks like a little boy, he said. 
And so he put two couches in the Oval Office and his chair at the end, and he would always sit in the chair, elevated above the others. God doesn't have to arrange the furniture. He is exalted on high. He looks down. He sees. And the word that is used here of God observing people means that he sees intently and completely. God sees exactly. He knows what the saints are doing, and he knows what the sinners are doing to the saints. He's on his throne. He's on the job. Jesus said, my father is always working, and I am working. Unfortunately, people may rebel. They may scheme. They may plan. But world affairs are not decided in Moscow or Beijing or Washington. God is not saying, oh, oh, what am I going to do? Please uh, send reinforcements and then I'll come and help. He's never surprised. He's never overwhelmed. He is not voted out. He doesn't need to be propped up or bailed out. He cannot be taken down, but he must be lifted up. And I'll tell you, God is not fed up with your faith, and he's not worn out by your prayers. The, the simplest, easiest, briefest prayer sincerely offered to God, he hears, he listens, and he's at work. People may rebel, but people must be righteous. Proverbs says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And this is why I get concerned whenever I hear of someone saying, oh, America is not a Christian nation. They too eagerly want to say that, it seems that. And really, fact, the fact is, most Americans probably are not born again. But you need to understand that our laws, heritage, freedoms, and authorities all came from a biblical perspective. A few years ago, two professors from the University of Houston did a groundbreaking study of our founding fathers. They went through 15,000 documents of the founders. Did you hear that? Did you get that number? 15,000. And they noticed three philosophers who were significant, Locke, Montesquieu, and Gladstone. And yet, the Bible is referred to over a third more than any other human being. It is from the Bible that our nation was founded in its principles, its laws, its attitudes. And this is why God bless America. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I say again, God has not blessed us with this freedom just to keep it for ourselves, but to share the gospel, to make an impact in the world. People must be righteous. But our righteousness only comes from how his word is upright. And because God is on his throne and on the job, we are safe and secure. Now remember, God understands. He knows what's going on. Notice that in verses 13 to 15. He understands. 
He knows when uh, we have a government sometimes that doesn't listen to its citizens. He knows when there are laws that are not biblically correct. You know, when the, the midwives in Egypt refused to obey the Pharaoh's fiat to kill the newborn babies, the Bible says they feared the Lord, and therefore they did not kill the babies. They were really, truly pro-life. But then a chapter or so later, it says not only did the midwives fear the Lord, then the people began to cry out to God. And he listened, and he remembered his covenant with Israel, and he took notice of them. In other words, God moved into action. And as I was studying this passage this past week, it occurred to me that sometimes some of us have to just take a hard stand and do what's right. And we may say, where's the moral majority in all of this? And we find ourselves somehow acting alone, standing alone, but the more we stand Separately, the more God will corporately raise up a mighty revolution of people who will pray and cry out to God. We have to do what is right. But God undergirds in this process, verses 16 to 19, He is our help and shield. Often these are mentioned together in the Bible because they are often uh, exactly what we need. His protection, though, His shield is not to pamper us, but to prepare us to get back in the battle. Sometimes God shelters us as our refuge and strength so that He can encourage us to get back, put on our armor, and once we've been healed, we go back and continue to minister. He undergirds, and then He undertakes. In verses 18 to 22, He undergirds, he undertakes through hope and help. Hope is always based on faith and waiting on the Lord. I don't like to wait on the Lord. If any of you like to wait on the Lord, uh, you have amazing patience. I'd rather worry or work. But God says, my delays are not my denials, and I'm, I'm calling you to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord like Moses. And God says, you wait because I am faithful. Look with me, please, very quickly at Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, 5b and verse 6. Or write this in your notes. Our help and our hope are based on God's faithfulness. Now listen to this. God said, now remember that, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I read this in Oswald Chambers just a few, a uh, couple of weeks ago. And the importance of he has said and my say-so is based on what he said. Because, you see, there are times when I am fear, uh, fearful or I don't have boldness. And I wonder, God, where are you in this situation? But because God has said, now get this, in the original language of the New Testament, this is a triple negative. God said, I will never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. I will never, no, never, not ever. How much clearer can it be? 
But our say-so is based on what he has promised. He will fulfill his covenant. He will not disown his children. He will not deny himself. He will not uh, disregard the responsibility he, he promised to perform with and in and through us. God is working in us so that he may work for us and through us. But it's always based on his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And blessed is the man or the woman whose God is the Lord. Janet and I have been going through a very difficult trial. And it was so difficult and so dark, we were clinging to whatever God could say to us. And the Lord spoke through a brief biography of uh, the great South African Andrew Murray. The missionary Amy Carmichael from India was at his home, and Murray was going through a very difficult time, and she noticed that he wrote in his diary said these powerful words. They were life-changing for us. Listen to this. Murray said, I'm here by God's appointment, in His keeping, under His training for his time. And then I wrote in my journal about this, through his power. I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time, and through the saving life of Christ. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.